Let me invite the children to meet their teachers in the back. Uh, and as they do that, let me in, <clears throat> invite you, if you are a guest of our church and you're looking for a church to call home, uh, we would love to tell you what that means to be a member of Restoration Church in our next membership class is two weeks from today on September the 30th. And so you can fill out the contact card, you can download our app, any of those ways, or just come talk to me or Travis afterwards, we'll be able to get you connected. And also, I realized this morning there are some visitors with us uh, that have come to Washington, D.C. because they are fleeing Florence. And so, um, and I know there are people here, probably nobody here doesn't have a family or a friend who is impacted by this. And so I recognize on the front of the sermon, some of us may be a bit distracted by what's going on. So what I want to do is I want to pray yet again that God in his kindness would allow us to look and gaze into his word so that we could behold his glory. So let me pray for us. Father, do take your word this morning and lift our eyes to things that are far too glorious to even comprehend. And so we understand your glory is like the ocean and we will never reach the bottom. But Lord, in your kindness, would you let us swim this morning in the fullness that we might see you and enjoy you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Some of you also might be thinking, like, who is this guy? Uh, I'm not a guest preacher, believe it or not. Uh, I have been gone for a couple of months. My name is Joey. I'm actually one of the pastors here, though you may not have seen me. Uh, God, in his kindness through our church, gave me a sabbatical And so I just want to say thank you, Restoration Church. Thank you for your kindness to me, to our family. If you want an update, you can come ask me, or you can listen to the podcast that we just recorded with Nathan. Uh, It's on the app, and so there's about 30 minutes of Paige and I thanking you and updating you. Uh, By God's grace, we were able to do all that we hoped to do. And if you remember, that was three things. It was rest primarily. So we're able to rest in the Lord and rest with our family and just create some sweet, special memories as a family together. I was able to do some learning, and so I watched about 30 hours of biblical counseling and just tried to grow as a pastor in my counseling ministry. And then I read, and I read quite a lot. I love to read, and I read uh, the Gospels exclusively in Scripture, and then I read several books that had to do with union with Christ. And God, in His kindness, providentially set me up to come back and preach a sermon that is going to be the overflow of a lot of that. And so this morning, as you, as you heard the, the passage read, uh, the, t- the title of the message is Blessed in Christ. And if we understood that one little phrase, I think our minds would be blown and our hearts would be warmed no matter what. Yet too often we reduce blessing to a hashtag we post on social media. God is going to do something far more magnificent, or I should say has done something far more magnificent. And so as you know, as, as often as I preach, I like to try to encapsulate my entire sermon into one sentence. And that sentence this morning is this. Praise God, because every possible blessing He could give you is yours in Christ. Praise God, because every possible blessing He could give you is yours in Christ And so this morning we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to show the biblical support for that verse. Don't listen to anything I say unless I root it in God's word. And then we'll turn our attention to verse 4 and see specifically what are one of these blessings that God 
gives to us in Christ. So praise God because every possible blessing he could give us is ours in Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. And we see Paul's first words after his introductory remarks. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or as your translation might say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts with praise. And this entire section, verses 3 through 14, is about praising God. It is pure, unfiltered, undiluted, soul-erupting worship. Like a volcano that bursts forth with lava, Paul's pen spills with lava, the ink praising God for who He is and what He has done. As Meldon read the text, did you notice the flow of this passage? In verses 3 through 6, we see the Father chose us and adopt us. In verses 7 through 12, we see the Son who redeems and forgives and the one who in all things will be united, bringing heaven and earth together. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see the work of the Holy Spirit who seals us and guarantees our heavenly inheritance. And so Paul, from eternity past to eternity future, draws our attention to the sovereign grace of the one true God who exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can read this passage, you'll notice that God is the subject of almost every verb. Eleven verses. You can read verses 3 and 4, there are no commands. Keep reading all the way down to verse 14, there are no commands. Keep reading all of chapter 1, there are no commands. Read chapters 2 and 3, you find one command. You know what it is? Remember. One command in the entire first three chapters of Ephesians, and the command is to remember. Paul begins his letters the church in Ephesus, not by telling them what they should and shouldn't do, but by reminding them what God has done. He's reminding them who they are and whose they are so they might worship God. Brothers and sisters, too often we approach the Christian faith as something to do. This text is not calling you to do. This text's aim is to produce something in you. Worship. Worship. Praise. That's, if you want an application, there it is. There's your application. Worship God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul's doing here. He is stating a fact. That word blessed, it's not a, it's not a verb here. It is an adjective. He is describing it as something true of God. Our blessing God does not add anything to God. When we say, blessed be God, we're not adding anything to Him. We're just ascribing what is rightly due Him. Praise, honor, worship. And in this, we glorify God. And when we glorify God, our lives are woven into the fabric of the eternal mosaic that God has and is painting. As Nathan said it last week, the Christocentric cosmic recreation to the praise of God's glory. 
Again, did you notice yet again, three times in this passage, after it talks about the work of the Father, after it talks about the work of the Son, after it talks about the work of the Spirit, you know how Paul summarizes it? Look there at verses 6, 12, and 14. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. This is the ultimate end. And so the Christian faith is not first and foremost about what we can get from God. The Christian faith is about the glory of God being central to all things. And the good news is this. God's glory and your joy do not compete. God's glory fills your joy complete. When we live our lives this way, oriented to the glory of God, when the frame of our soul is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We're doing the very thing we were created to do. We say it often around here. We say things like, just as a clock was made to tick, you were made to do what? Worship. That's right. And we were made to worship not just individually, but collectively. And this is what we naturally do. Think about it. We behold something, then we boast. We delight in something, then we declare. We, we praise and we proclaim. Think about it. When you see a good movie, what do you do? You go tell others, like, you have to go see this. You eat a good meal. You have to go eat here with me. It's college football season. What do we do? We're crazy. We get dressed up in our team colors. We, we yell at a TV and we talk about how, why others should as well. Our life is a natural rhythm of seeing and praising. It's what we do. And so the question is not if you praise or worship, but who or what do you praise or worship? And because all of us were created with the capacity to enjoy God, yes, God himself. You have that capacity to enjoy him. If you praise and worship anything less than God, you will not be full. You would be like the hungry man who chases after the wind, chomping on it, trying to satisfy the cravings in his stomach. It might give him something to do. It might even be fun for a little bit. But it is going to do nothing ultimately to satisfy his deepest cravings. We are created by God to be part of a community of God that worships God. And in this, we find our true purpose and our unshakable identity. No matter what happens to us, here is where we are rooted. Remember, don't let this get lost on you, church. Where is Paul when he is writing this letter? He's in jail. He is in prison. And how does he start? Lord, get me out of jail, please. No. His first words are praising God. His hands and feet are shackled, but his soul is soaring. In Restoration Church, this is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons why it's so good for us to come here each week together. Life is hard. Amen? Life is hard. We have daily stress of job. We have financial pressures just to get by. School assignments never seem to end. The degrees are just not enough. We love our spouse and our kids, but the many responsibilities of our family are just all that more demanding upon our life. Add to that the illnesses we face, the unmet godly desires we have, the unfortunate news we receive, the, the, lost, one, the lost ones that have gone before us and have passed away. I mean, it's just massive how hard life can be. And then on top of that, we regularly hear sermons 
meaning the, the advertisements of the world around us that, that tell us, hey, satisfaction is not found in God. Indulge yourself in anything but God. Or maybe we're tempted on the other side, and we're not, we're not tempted toward indulgence as much as we are indifference and dullness. And the, like, it just doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. The point of life is it's pointless. It's small. It's insignificant. But neither one of those provide what we need. Why? Because who's at the center of both of those? Me. Self. When I'm at the center of my life, my life shrinks down to the size of myself. It shrinks. And you and me were made to delight and someone greater than ourselves. And so what's the remedy? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Placing God at the center of our lives, praising Him is the remedy. And that's what we get to do each and every week. When we come together and we sing songs like we just sang, we hear prayers and we pray like we just prayed, we read God's Word, we remember we are forgetful people. We remember who God is and what He's done and we look forward to what He will do. We remember. We remind each other where true hope and true joy is found. We remind each other that though our lives might seem small and insignificant, We're actually part of a symphony singing God's glory and praise that will never end. And so we do the same thing as we come together in community groups, don't we? We encourage one another. We do the same thing as we text one another and we send each other emails of encouragement. We'll do that same thing this week as we fast and pray together as a church. What's the point of fasting? It makes no sense unless God is really worthy of all praise. So when you fast from something this week, with every hunger pain that you have, every time that you want to get on social media, whatever, remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll come together as a church next Friday night and pray and praise God. Blessed be God. This is what we get to do. Restoration Church, praising God is not an optional addition to your life. It's not a hashtag on the end of your tweets. Praising God is the stage on which we live life to the fullest. So Paul begins by praising God. But we still have an answer to a really important question. Why? Why is Paul praising God? Answer, because every blessing he could possibly give us is ours in Christ. If that's not a reason, I don't know what is. Look again at verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says, bless God because he's blessed us. Now, we need to be really clear here, because remember what I said, our blessing God doesn't add anything to God. His blessing to us is altogether different. It adds to us. It gives us something. And what does it give us? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many, Paul? Every. All. Complete. Total. Every 
spiritual blessing. Every conceivable blessing God could give you is yours in Christ. And notice what it says. Not that He will bless you. This is past tense. He has blessed us. He's not holding out on you. He's not withholding anything from you. And who's the us? Remember who Paul, Paul's writing to? Us, saints. And as Nathan showed us last week, anyone who takes the name of Christ, anyone who's trusting in Christ alone for salvation is a saint. And so Paul is not saying these spiritual blessings are, are some mysterious power or cosmic connection reserved for a select few. That's not what he's saying. He's saying every saint is blessed with every spiritual blessing. That is amazing. Do you see why God is Paul's praising God? Because God bountifully, bountifully bestows every blessing on his children. And what are those blessings? Well, generally speaking, he says there's spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say he blesses us with every material possession in the earthly places. Now, God is eager to bless us. But these blessings are not primarily evidenced through health, wealth, and prosperity. But let me also say something else. God is not against material things. He is not against the physical world. He did create it after all, and he will redeem it fully after all. But reducing blessings to physical things is far too small for what Paul has in view here. The word spiritual is used in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit. So these spiritual blessings are every benefit that has its source in the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit that helps us enjoy and know God now and forever. And that's why Paul says these blessings are where? They're in the heavenly places. This is a phrase we find five times in this letter and nowhere else in the New Testament. And it does not refer to some distant reality or location. Paul's talking about a present spiritual reality. Paul is calling our attention to the fact that what we see with our physical eyes is not the only thing in our lives. So if you just drop down and you read chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Paul prays. And what does he pray for? May the Lord give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened. We see with the eyes of our eyes, there's a real spiritual dimension to our lives. I know we might not like this as enlightened Westerners, but it's true. And Paul is telling us, listen, God's blessings are not limited to the temporary and transient things of this world. Every blessing poured on you is in the heavenly realms, which, by the way, is where Christ is seated supreme. So it is secure and permanent, not only for this world, but also the world to come. The focus here is not earthly trinkets, but eternal treasures. Paul is saying every possible blessing in heaven is yours. And get this, one day heaven and earth will be united. So though these blessings may not primarily be material now, they will be fully materialized when Christ unites heaven and earth. 
or as he prayed, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on as it is in. Amen. And so one day we will fully see Jesus face to face, enjoying him and the world it was always meant to be. And every spiritual blessing will be fully materialized. And Paul says, praise God for this truth. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, okay, that's great. Well, how do we get these blessings? Do I have to work really hard and try to convince God to give them to me? Is he like a pinata I need to whack with my prayers to have them come pouring out on me? Is he like a a vending machine that I deposit good religious deeds and so he can, you know, pop out these religious benefits to me? No. What does the text say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us Because of your good behavior. He's blessed us. In Christ. Those last two words are critical. Lose those two words and you lose everything Paul is talking about here. Lose those two words and you lose the entire Christian faith. Lose those two words and we should go home. What Paul is referring to here, as Nathan told us last week, is union with Christ. Which means, I am fully in Christ. And Christ is fully in me. So by God's grace, all who place their faith and trust in Jesus are intimately, vitally, and truly connected to Jesus by the Spirit so that all He is I am. All he has done, I have done. And all he has is mine. Or to use the context of this passage, simply put, in Christ, every blessing that belongs to him belongs to me. And what blessing would God the Father withhold from his Son? None. So union with Christ is like a vine and branches. All branches connected to a healthy vine receive the sap of life-giving nourishment. And so it is with Christ. He is the vine. When we're united to Him, we we receive the full flow of gospel-nourishing, grace-giving, soul-satisfying, spiritually-blessing sap of Christ. It is impossible to overstate the importance of what this means. Somebody asked this morning, like, Joey, how are you? I was like, I'm, I'm tired. And here's why. All week, I've been trying to think about this, and all week I have felt like a mosquito trying to describe how an eagle soars. It's just frustrating, because we cannot overstate the importance of what Paul is saying here. Did you notice that in verses 3 through 14, as Mel read, how many times you see the phrase, in Christ, or through Christ, or in Him? Eleven. If you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, which I encourage you to do, you know how many times you come across a phrase like this? About 25. 25. It's all over the place. Paul wants the Ephesians to know. Paul wants us to know that apart from Jesus Christ, God has nothing to offer us. Apart from union with Christ, it is impossible to receive any of the blessings of Christ. A man by the name of John Calvin said it this way 500 years ago. As long as 
Christ remains outside of us, or more properly, we remain outside of Christ, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. End quote. Everything God the Father has to give us, he gives us in his eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus cannot be divided, and Jesus cannot be separated from his blessings. You either united to the whole of Christ and you receive every spiritual blessing, or you're not united to Christ and you receive no benefits and blessings. For my non-Christian friends, I hope you see something. One, I hope you see the beauty of Jesus. And I hope you see that if you're not trusting in Christ alone to have a relationship with God, you're apart from Him. Apart from Jesus, there is no life, there is no blessing, there is no hope. There is only separation now and forever. Apart from Jesus, all of us, including myself, all of us are left naked, stripped down, guilty, and helpless. But, in Christ, in Christ, God offers everything, everything we need to know Him and enjoy Him forever. So will you come to Christ this morning? Will you come to Christ this morning? And for my brothers and sisters, I hope this word in Christ doesn't get lost on us. Don't reduce this just to another doctrine that you agree with in your head. See, here's what can happen. We can functionally agree with in Christ in our head, and yet we still live as if we look into a carnival mirror. And the result is we have a distorted view of what's true. But in Christ is the mirror of perfection that tells us who we truly are. Not just in our eyes, but in the eyes that matter most. The eyes of God Himself. Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ because He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Don't let this get lost on you. In Christ you are chosen by God the Father. Through Christ we're adopted into God's family, 1-5. In Christ you're redeemed by the blood, 1-7. In Christ you have obtained an eternal inheritance, 1-11. In Christ you have great hope, 1-12. God works the greatness of his power to you in Christ, 1-20. Though once dead in sin, you are alive in Christ, 2-5. You've been raised up with Christ, 2-6. God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ, 2-7. In Christ, God created you for good works, 2-10. In Christ, you are far off but brought near by the blood of Christ, 2.13. In Christ, we have access to the Father, 2.18. In Christ, Restoration Church, we're being built together, 2.22. In Christ, we're partakers of the promise of the gospel, 3.6. In Christ, we have boldness and access before the Father, 3.12. God is able to do far more abundant than all we ask or think in Christ, 3.20. That's a good time to say Amen. I have a question for you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Hopefully, 
with a little more clarity and affection, we can join Paul and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I recognize for many of you right now, your heart is soaring. Your union with Christ and all the blessings you have in him are real to the taste buds of your soul, is real as honey is to the sweetness on your tongue. Praise God for that. It is a gift from him. Enjoy it and live in light of it and labor to help others taste it along with you. But for some, that's not your, what's happening. There's a gap. You know these things to be true. You've confessed your rebellion against God. You're trusting in Christ. You know these truths should be sweet. You even want them to be sweet to you. And for whatever reason, they're not. What do we do with that? Let me suggest two things. First, don't ignore your feelings. Yes, I just said that. Your emotions are not primary, but they're not unimportant. Be honest with God. You know how many times I meet with people and they're like, I just, God's not very sweet to me. He's not real. I'm like, have you confessed that to him? Have you told him that? No. Be honest. And then be honest with yourself. And then be honest with others around you. Don't feel like you're a fraud. And don't feel like you have to put on a plastic smile and just pretend everything is okay. Be honest. Because here's the thing. The very fact that you're not okay with not being okay is an evidence of God's grace. And second, as gently and as pastorally as I could, I would want to remind you that your experience of truth does not determine the validity of truth. Or to say it another way, the truth and the reality of our union with Christ will always be greater than our experience of it. Always. All of us have to grow. That's why in chapter 4 Paul says, we are to grow up in every way into Christ. So this tells me that while we already objectively and definitively have Christ, we're in Christ, there's an experiential and subjective part that we may need to grow in. One of the books that I read on sabbatical put the idea this way. Imagine a little boy wearing his father's dress shirt. He is already fully clothed, you could say, but he's still just a boy. He'll have to grow up into this new covering until it fits him and he can fully enjoy wearing it. In the same way, we are already completely clothed in Christ and his righteousness, but life in Christ is one of growing up into this new reality until it fits. So my prayer restoration church is we walk through Ephesians together, not just individually, but together. We, we, we have those that are just soaring in their union with Christ, and it's sweet. We have those that, that, are, that are just not there. That God would use His Word and all of us together to help us all grow in our understanding of all that we have in Christ because that is where every spiritual blessing is found. So praise God because every possible, every conceivable blessing He could give us is ours in Christ. 
Now, in verses 4 through 14, Paul goes on to identify several specific blessings. So we'll have to take the next couple of weeks and we'll just begin to gaze very specifically at some of these things that Paul immediately has in mind. This morning, we're going to look at chapter uh, 1, verse 4, and we're just going to look at one of these, where Paul draws our attention to to what is mind-blowing, heart-anchoring blessing we have in Christ. Look at verse 4. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, Paul, well, can we get practical here? Can you like give me some of those blessings? Yeah. Chapter 4, verse, or chapter 1, verse 4. Even as, or just as, or because, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Huh? What? He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the first spiritual blessing that comes to Paul's mind is that God the Father chose him. Is that the first thing you thought about this morning when you thought about spiritual blessings? He chose us. The testimony of Scripture is that if you are a Christian, it is not because you are smart enough to choose God. It is because God chose you. We like to be chosen, don't we? Play pickup basketball, you're picked first, you're like, yes. You send in that application to the school, they come back, you have been chosen and accepted for admission. That guy or gal chooses you for a date. Feels good. Look how good I am. Is that why God chose us? Did he look down and say, wow, I need some help. And that Joey, he's just awesome. I mean, I really need him on my team. And so I'm going to choose him. Because if I don't get him on my team, who knows what's going to happen? I don't think so. What does the text say? When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. If you're united to Jesus, if you are in Christ, it is not because God saw how good you are. It is not because God saw how much faith you would have. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Wow. Let's just jump into the deep theological end this morning, why don't we? We're in the presence of divine mystery. And I've been a pastor long enough to know, when we read things like this, he chose us, he predestined us, we start splashing around frantically, and what about my free choice? What about those you didn't choose? What about, what about, what about, what about? And these questions aren't necessarily wrong. And for now, let me just say this. Scriptures, what Scripture says so clearly, salvation is totally from God, and He joyfully welcomes all who comes to Him repentant in faith. We could have a lot more conversation, but when we read the Bible, we have to answer and ask the questions the Bible's asking and answering. And what is the question in the forefront of Paul's mind? Why? Is God the Father worthy of praise? 
That's the question. That's what he's trying to get us to see. Paul does not bring up this idea of God choosing and electing to start a debate. He brings it up so that we could delight. He's not trying to confuse us. He's trying to comfort us in Christ. Paul is saying that God is worthy of all praise because He chose us before the foundation of the world. And He did so not because of how great we are, but unconditionally in love. So whatever questions we have, one thing is clear. Salvation is entirely and totally and fully grace-based. This is good news. You know why? It means you can't screw it up. You can't mess it up. You can't lose it. If you did nothing to earn it, you can't do anything to unearn it. This is good news. When we understand this, it does at least. I, I listed about seven. I was like, I don't have time to go through all those old two. Let me give you two. It humbles us. We're not saved because we're morally superior. Do you know that, church? You are not morally superior to non Christians. It's not why God saved you. He did not save you because you had the right religious upbringing. He didn't save you because of how capable you are. We're chosen by the free, unmerited, sovereign grace of God. And this decision was made before the foundation of the world. This dismantles every form of pride. Every form of pride. Christians should be the most humble of all people in the entire world. It humbles us. Second, this truth of God choosing us in Christ gives us an unwavering assurance of God's love for us. This is what we call the doctrine of election. And as stale as that might seem, oh, how beautiful it is. It is like an anchor for our soul, both when the sun is shining and the rain is falling. Why? Why why should we have this assurance? Why did God choose us? Do you see it in the text? In love, He predestined us. Or just to flip over to chapter 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which He's loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when you were dead in your sin, God says, I have great love for you. The reason for God choosing us is not found in us, it's found in Him. And because of His great love, because of His amazing grace, because of His unbounded compassion, before this says anything about us, it says something amazing about God. We are not left to our own personal, limited experiences to try to interpret how God feels about us. Isn't that good news? And because of this, we have an unwavering assurance of God's love. Let me quote another book that I read on sabbatical. It's by a guy named John Owen, and it's Communion with God. It's thick, it's dense, but it's wonderful. And he says this about the love of God. The love of God is like himself. His love is the same for all He has chosen. His love is constant and not capable of being increased or diminished. God's love is like the sun. That's the S-U-N. Always the same in its light, though a cloud may sometimes hide it. Our love is like the moon. Sometimes it is only a crescent. 
on whom God set his love, it is set forever. It is a love that cannot be increased by anything we do and that cannot be lessened by anything in us. Isn't that amazing? God's love flows from who he is. And his love is not in reaction to our goodness and it's not restricted by our badness. Do you see what this means, church? If God chose us before the foundation of the world and his motivation for doing so is his own free love, what does this say about the character of God and the cross of Christ? It says this. Jesus dying on the cross did not force the Father to love us. Jesus going to the cross flows from the Father's love for us. Romans 5.8 But God shows His own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is a demonstration and a declaration of God's love. God's love, God doesn't love because of the cross. There is a cross because God loves. Get that, church. God does not love because of the cross. There is a cross because God loves. This is critical if we want to enjoy Paul and his praise. Too often I think we think of God as a begrudging father who reluctantly accepts us because he has to. It's like somehow we think, we may not say it this directly, but we think like Jesus had to convince the father to love us and the father like one time said, okay, I'll do it. Like Jesus came and died and now he's back in the presence and God's like, I'm so sorry I did that. I really didn't want to be with those people. Like he regrets it. And when we think and feel this way, we're like, God is at least always mildly disappointed with me. That's when he's thinking of me. And when he's not, he doesn't really care. And my question to that is like, who would want to worship a God like that? If that's our view of God, heaven should be uninspiring. Who would want to spend eternity with someone like that? But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Christian faith. The testimony of Scripture is before the foundation of the world, God chose us. God's love is not begrudging, but it's overflowing. It is not limited. It is lavish upon us. Before the foundation of the world, the eternal triune God, the divine counsel of love, met and said, I choose you, Paige. I choose you, Dimitri. I choose you, Meldon. I choose you, Megan. And you, Travis. Is there anything more mind-blowing and heartwarming than that? To know, get this, to know before the foundation of the world was created, God set His affections upon you in Christ. God's decision to save you was not some forced, last-minute plan that he now regrets. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, it is purposefully planned by a loving Father who chose you from eternity to be with Him for eternity. 
rest assured in the love of God. Praise God, Paul says. Praise God. And as wonderful as this is, Paul keeps going. Why did he choose us? Why did he choose us? Verse 4, second half. That we should be holy and blameless before him. God's purpose in choosing us before the foundation of the world is so that we should be holy and blameless. To be holy is to be set apart. Or as I like to think about it, to be holy is to be beautiful. To be beautiful. And to be blameless. That is, that is without stain or guilt. Holy and blameless. Pure and clean. Beautiful and spotless. And notice again what the text says. It says that we should be holy and blameless. It doesn't say we might one day become. It doesn't say we have to strive to attain. It is stating a present fact. Paul here is not talking about what we do, our practice. He's talking about who we are, our position. Does that inform what we do? Of course it does. Paul's going to talk all about that in chapters 4 through 6. But right now, he just wants you to know who you are in Christ. He's boldly declaring, in Christ, you are holy and blameless. Flip over to chapter 5. You see this very thing. This is the very reason Christ died for his people. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. What does that mean? What means to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless or without blemish? Same exact phrase. Beloved, can this be true? Can it be true that Christ, who is truly God, took on the fullness of humanity and lived a perfect, sinless life. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took all that was yours, your sin, your guilt, your filthiness. He took it on himself, naked, exposed, being mocked by men and women, taking every bit of shame on himself, hung suspended between a holy God and an unholy people. And he died paying for every wrong for those who trust him. Can that be true? And not just that he died, but he rose three days later, giving us his righteousness, his purity, his cleanliness, his holiness. And now you have a heavenly husband waiting for his radiant bride to be with her for all of eternity. Do you notice those last two words? Before him. God does not do all this just so he can remain distant and far off. It's before him, in his sight, in his presence, in Christ. We're not just freed to go from God, we're chosen to come before him. So all of us struggle with sin throughout our lives. All of us. And all of us struggle with the stain of shame and things that have been done against us. But that sin and that shame do not have to define us. In Christ, He alone defines us. Our identity becomes His identity and He is holy and blameless. Resist the temptation to find your identity in anything but the beautiful perfection of Christ. 
It's not in your job. It's not in your performance. It's not in what you do or you haven't done. If you're trusting in Christ alone, your identity is his and he is holy and blameless. For those not trusting in Christ alone, that, that you, you came in here this morning, you think that you have to clean yourself up before you can come to God. No, there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. That's bad news. But I have good news. Christ has done it all for you. Christ has done it all. And all that he has is yours. Will you come to him this morning? Will you trust in him? Will you turn from your rebellion and trust in Christ and say, Christ, you are my life. I am holy because you're holy. I'm blameless because you're blameless. Or maybe you're thinking something else. Maybe you're thinking that what you've done is so disgusting, you could never come before God. He would never welcome you. Your heart sinks because you hear whispers all the time that tell you you've outsinned God's ability or desire to forgive you. It's not true. It's not true. There's no amount of shame or guilt that prevents you from coming to God. There's no provision you have to hide. There's no persistent failure that he's unaware of or will be surprised by. As the saying goes, God is more full of grace and love than we are of sin and shame. In Christ, the one who is fully God, fully holy, fully blameless, what else do you need? What else do you need? Will you come to Christ this morning taking his every perfection that covers your every imperfection. Restoration Church, praise God because every possible blessing he could give us is ours in Christ. Praise God because he freely chose us in Christ that we might be holy and blameless now and forever. So I leave you with a question that I've already asked. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He's not holding out on you. Come and praise him. Father, we're astounded at the magnificent beauty of your word because it points us to the magnificent beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice in him. We celebrate him. Help us to know and enjoy all the spiritual blessings that we have in him. Father, we walk out this book together as a church. Do a mighty work in us and through us. All for the glory of your name in Christ. Holy Spirit, seal us. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might savor these sweet truths. We pray these things in the only name that's worthy before your throne. The name of Jesus who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.